0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, listeners, and welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Emily Allen, and I'm your host for this episode. For our episode today, I'm talking with Dr. Caroline Young about her book, The Peculiar Afterlife of Slavery, The Chinese Worker and the Minstrel Form, published by Stanford University Press in 2020, in the series on Asian America. The Peculiar Afterlife of Slavery explores how anti-Black racism lived on through the figure of the Chinese worker in U.S. literature after emancipation. Drawing out the connections between this liminal figure and the formal aesthetics of blackface minstrelsy in literature of the Reconstruction and Post-Construction eras, Caroline H. Young Reveals the ways anti-Blackness structured U.S. cultural production during a crucial moment of reconstructing and re-narrating U.S. empire after the Civil War. Ultimately, the peculiar afterlife of slavery shows how the Chinese worker manifests the inextricable links between U.S. literature, slavery, and empire as well as the indispensable role of anti-Blackness as a cultural form in the United States. Our guest today, Dr. Caroline Yong, is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So, Dr. Yong, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Asian American Studies.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Emily. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So before we get into the book, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm a first-gen immigrant literary scholar who teaches Asian American, African American, and American literatures from the late 19th century to the present. I've been teaching at UMass Amherst since 2014, and before that, I taught in the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Wonderful.
0: And we'll talk a little bit more about um, your work, too, and background as we get more into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, Sticking with the book for a moment here, can you tell us who do you think target readers for your book might be?
1: Yeah. Um, As I was writing, I imagined myself writing within a community of scholars in Asian-American studies and African-American studies. But I also hope the book can reach um, readers across various disciplines and even a general audience outside of academia, Um, especially people who don't know the history of blackface minstrelsy or why blackface minstrelsy is problematic. Um, Anyone who's interested in social justice and thinking critically and with an open mind about what we take for granted as accepted knowledge of history would be an ideal reader for the book. Um, More importantly, I'd love to reach readers who want to learn how social movements like Black Lives Matter are not just about contemporary concerns, but are also historically shaped. And people who love Westerns and canonical writers like Mark Twain, um, but are also open to thinking about them critically. And one more thing, can I just say that I love that you, Emily, a PhD student in musicology, are interviewing me. It's really wonderful to know that folks outside of my discipline of English are reading the book. Absolutely.
0: I think your work extends to so many disciplines. Um, this book, I mean, as a musicologist, I learned so much about the you know literary side of everything. Hmm. Um and I love what you were talking about with the contemporary arc that goes back to that too, um, with Black Lives Matter. And I definitely think that resonates um, in the book for sure. Very timely project. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are this kind of goes into the next question actually really well. Um, you are kind of getting at this, but you know, what does this book also add to existing scholarship? You know, to what scholarly areas does this text contribute?
1: Mm. Yeah, right now, there's um, growing interest and work on reconstruction. Historians have always been interested in the reconstruction period after the Civil War. But there's renewed energy around it um, to think about the period beyond what was going on just in the South. So in Asian American studies, which is my field of training and expertise, Books like Moon Ho Jung's Coolies and Cain and Ed Lee Wong's Racial Reconstruction have called for thinking about how Chinese workers who were seen as ideal labor replacements for formerly enslaved African Americans were racialized at this time, um, particularly in comparison to African Americans and centered on the question of whether or not the Chinese workers were free. My book adds to this scholarship by looking at how the Chinese workers were racialized through literary representations that invoke blackface minstrelsy, which has roots in slavery. And in terms of the scholarly areas that my book is contributing to, in addition to Asian American studies and literary studies, I'm in dialogue with scholars in African American studies and American studies who call for a critical way of thinking about slavery, U.S. empire, and the persistent existence of anti-Black racism in the United States.
0: Yes, and I think there's definitely, that comes through in the book for sure, Um, those conversations uh, with the points you make about the various authors. Um, Going back to the idea of sort of the historical basis of the book too. You know, can you talk to us about the various sources you used to write The Peculiar Afterlife of Slavery? What was it like to weave everything together for this book?
1: Mm. I really like that description of weaving everything together. It sounds very fluid and graceful and cohesive, which I hope is how the final product appears. Yes, um. <laughs> As I said, I'm a literary scholar, so of course, literary texts are my primary, primary source. But as I tell my students, literature doesn't happen in a vacuum. And during the period that my book examines, the most widespread phenomenon in U.S. Pop- popular culture was blackface minstrelsy. And it was really blackface minstrelsy was really the first form of national pop culture in the United States. So I pair my readings of literature with minstrel songs, dialogues, and posters and other paraphernalia. And I also show that these cultural performances and artifacts shaped and were shaped by legal definitions of people and practices. So I look at congressional records, laws, and court cases, too. And I try to connect them through my close reading of them as texts, using my skills as a literary scholar. And um, like you said, it felt important to weave everything together because we might dismiss blackface minstrelsy as a lowbrow cultural form that only blatant racist white people engaged in. But minstrelsy really crossed class lines. Um, what we might see today as so obviously racist was enjoyed as totally acceptable, and they had material consequence in how people were racially categorized and hierarchized.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, the reason I asked that question was I did notice the breadth that of you know materials, literary and otherwise, that you had to work through, it seemed like. So I was really fascinated by that um, approach that you took in the book
1: yeah and yeah I was also thinking um you know like how like as I was writing the book I mean like how would someone have written this book before the internet (laughs) you know because these days so many things are digitized um and so, you know, I mean, I did look at, like, actual sources, too, like, you know, like, minstrel songbooks that were, like, falling apart and that were, like, all browned with age. Um, but many of these are, like, actually digitized. So it made me, like, really think about um, the historical aspect of um, the, the archive, you know, um, and how popular these texts were, but now they're all the, all in these like really super prestigious um, university libraries. Um, so it's kind of made accessible in, in a different way. Um, but I think that the, the fact that they are digitized and made available um, is helping, you know, like scholars like me take a look at them in a different in a different way.
0: Yeah. And I was also thinking too for people in the middle of projects or just starting them in a pandemic. That's, mm. you know, another thing. So I think that's an interesting point about mm. that. Um, yeah. um going back to kind of a general point about the book, there's a phrase that you use in your book's title, menstrual form. So can you explain what you mean by that to our listeners?
1: Sure, of course. Um, The minstrel form is actually related to my previous answer. So even though I do look at minstrel songs and dialogues, the main object of analysis in my book is not blackface performances on the stage. Um, Instead, I'm interested in the form of blackface minstrelsy and how that got taken up off the stage in other cultural expressions such as literature. Also in literary studies, form is traditionally thought to be on the side of the aesthetic in the aesthetic versus political binary um, and it's thought that studying form means only paying attention to the aesthetic activity or choice of a text or author that organizes or structures a text. But more scholars are calling for expanding that understanding of form to see it as inseparable from the political so my use of minstrel form refers to things like minstrel songs, dialogues, and figures, and my analysis of them connects them to the larger structure of power.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I think that helps set up the you know heart of our discussion that we're about to go into um, for our listeners. So thanks for the mm-hmm. breakdown. Um, and you also continue to set up, you know, your different analyses of these texts, of these different iterations of the menstrual form in your introduction. And um, one point that you make in the introduction is, quote, by studying representations of the Chinese worker as demonstrating the persistence of anti-Blackness in and through the menstrual form, I am underscoring the inseparable link between formal menstrual representations of race and the structure of white supremacy in slavery and its afterlife, end quote. Can you talk a little bit
1: more about that point? Yes, that's a key point that I'm making in the book. I'm saying that there's an inseparable connection between blackface minstrelsy and the structure of white supremacy that organized people's lives during slavery, um, this didn't end with slavery, but continued in what Sadia Hartman calls the afterlife of slavery, in the ways that Black lives continue to be imperiled even after emancipation. So let me break that down a bit. Um, it's become common knowledge to say that race is socially constructed, that it's made to be socially meaningful. I'm saying that one of the ways that race was made socially meaningful during slavery was through blackface minstrelsy, through white people performing a kind of blackness that didn't radically change the system of slavery. So it wasn't just that the white people performed a lampooned and caricatured versions of what it meant to be black. Um, By blackening their skin and claiming to be and to know what it meant to be black, white performers were taking ownership of blackness, which lined up with the racial logic of chattel slavery that deemed enslaved black people to be property. So, Put differently, blackface minstrelsy was part of the system of thinking that turned black people into commodities, and this extended the right of ownership to all white people who participated in minstrelsy, either as performers or audience members. And we know this white supremacist way of thinking about race didn't just end with slavery because blackface minstrelsy didn't go away after slavery. It actually became even more popular during Reconstruction and evolved into other forms, which is where my book begins.
0: Right. And we definitely see its afterlife today, like mm-hmm. some meme cultures or even iterations of um, minstrelsy in terms of how they that afterlife has continued. Um, oh,
1: absolutely. All the comedians, yeah, coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
0: So again, like I said earlier, very timely book that I hope folks mm-hmm. will enjoy. Um, <laughs> but going back in time, uh, for the <laughs> first half of your book, you focus on you know this period of the Reconstruction era, like you're mm-hmm. talking about. So what was going on at that time when the wave of literature that you're referring to came about? And I'm thinking about, for instance, about your discussions of the Chinese question that you get into in the introduction.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think most people think of reconstruction as an attempt to rebuild and restore order in the South after the Civil War. But it was also a time of redefinition of concepts like US citizenship, and what it meant to be free, and what it meant to be a free worker. So a lot of people might not know how significant the quote unquote Chinese question was in this process of redefinition during this period. Um, so to clarify, the Chinese question was a debate over whether or not Chinese workers were beneficial to the development of the United States. Um, The first sizable group of Asians in the United States was the Chinese workers who worked on the mines in California after the discovery of gold in 1848. After that, another group of Chinese workers came to work on the railroads in the 1860s. From the beginning, the Chinese workers were seen in comparison to enslaved Black people in the South, and there was always a question about whether or not they were free or enslaved labor because they came under contracts. During Reconstruction, with the abolishment of slavery, this question became much more pressing because slavery was no longer acceptable in the United States, meaning there could not be any enslaved peoples in the United States. So if the Chinese workers were indeed slaves, they needed to be excluded. And this is precisely what happened during Reconstruction. Congress passed laws during Reconstruction that prevented Chinese people from becoming U.S. citizens and curtailed their immigration, which paved the way for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And this prohibited Chinese workers from entering the country. What's important to note here are two things. First, the Chinese workers were not enslaved. They came to work in the United States of their own accord. The second is that the lawmakers were making an anti-slavery argument by excluding the Chinese, but they were not actually anti-racist. In fact, their um, anti-Chinese, anti anti-slavery argument was racist because it assumed that it was the racialized workers and their inherent incapacity for freedom that was the problem, not the system of exploitation that racialized the workers in the first place and devalued them. So it's a really twisted and contradictory logic. But what ultimately came out of racializing the Chinese workers as slaves was the justification for their exclusion, you know, that they deserve to be excluded and mistreated, um, as well as concretization of the meaning of slave as people who are inherently incapable of freedom.
0: Right. And you, unfortunately, you definitely see all that come through um, in your case studies, you know, that you give. In the first half, you know, for instance, you talk about um, how Harriet Beecher Stowe's characters Topsy from Uncle Tom's Cabin and Caesar from Old Town Folks replicate, quote, the form of blackface minstrelsy and the racialization of a non-white character as a stock comic figure for white enjoyment, in quote, that are also perpetuated, you know, going back to the Chinese worker Mm. um, trope that's present in Bret Hart's poem, Plain Language. So, you know, can you talk about how all those broader things that you were just talking about manifest in these relationships between the minstrel figures of Stowe's and Hart's writings?
1: Mm -hmm, Yeah. Um, So for people who might not know, um, Topsy is an enslaved Black girl character in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is widely touted as the anti-slavery novel that started the Civil War. But even in that book that's against slavery, Topsy appears as a minstrel figure. Topsy's character exemplifies what I said earlier about minstrelsy replicating the logic of slavery. She is literally called a thing. She's bought as a pe- present by a character for his sister and as a means of introducing herself, she is made to sing and dance for the entertainment of the characters who own her. In this way, she's an embodiment of the minstrel form. She's not a stage character, but she very well could be. And the character of Caesar in Old Town Folks that you mention is similar. So my point about these characters is that they show how pervasive the minstrel form was in 19th century U.S. popular culture and white imagination. Um, Many people might know that Stowe was a New Englander from an abolitionist family who likely never attended a minstrel show. But her depictions of Topsy and Caesar are unmistakably minstrel. And the character of Topsy became a staple in minstrel adaptations of the novel and really became a cultural phenomenon. So this is the context in which I argue we have to study Bret Hart's poem, Plain Language from Truthful James, which was published during Reconstruction in 1870. If Uncle Tom's Cabin was the most popular 19th century U.S. novel, Plain Language was the most popular 19th century poem in the United States. Um, it was about two white miners in California who tried to cheat a Chinese worker in a game, um, a card game, but end up getting cheated themselves. And the poem became practically an overnight sensation. I like to say that in today's language, it went viral. It was reprinted in newspapers all across the country, and it coined the label heathen Chinese to refer to Chinese people, which became a normalized part of everyday bo- vocabulary. And you see this reference to like heathen Chinese throughout like much of the first half of the 20th century. In my first chapter, I show that the Chinese character in Hart's poem is a minstrel figure and has connections to Topsy's character. Among other things that unite these two characters, one thing that I emphasize is the supposed humor that these characters are imbued with. The reason that these characters became such a sensation is that people thought they were both hilarious. And this idea that racialized caricatures, which are imagined and produced by white people, are so funny and are objects of white entertainment and enjoyment, is rooted in blackface minstrelsy. So the fact that Hart, who was actually dismissive of minstrel shows as lowbrow, the fact that he created a Chinese character that at first seems to have nothing to do with images of Blackness, but became so popular, shows not just how pervasive the minstrel form was, but also how it was adapted to racialize Chinese people, who I said were, um, who, as I said, were often compared to Black people during and after slavery.
0: Yeah. And I definitely, I think, as you demonstrated the chapter, clear connections between that rhetoric. um, that carried over from Blackface minstrelsy into that poem. Um, you know, you saw that in songs at the time and whatnot all the time. Um, yeah, it's that.
1: so, yeah, yeah. So, like, Topsy inspired Asin, and then Asin kind of, Asin is the name of the Chinese character. Um, and Asen inspired like other minstrel songs. Um, so it's kind of like this like circul- circular thing that um, that happened through the minstrel form.
0: Yeah, and I definitely think all those sources we were talking about earlier uh, solidify that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you s- going on to our other case study as well in chapter two, um, continuing with the Chinese worker figure, you talk about how The Chinese worker figure, quote, played in the construction of Mark Twain as a distinctly U.S. literary brand in the early 1870s, end quote, and how his writings reveal, quote, the racial logic of anti-blackness undergirding the construction of the settler colonial space of the West, specifically through the racialization of the Chinese, end quote. So this kind of goes to what you're talking about um, going beyond the South, you know, Mm -hmm. in this way. Um, So how do you see all of that playing out in Twain's work?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think most people know Mark Twain from Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, um, which is a novel published in 1885. But Twain was almost 50 then. So what did he do before that? And how did he become known as the quintessential American writer? Um, And like you said, because Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is set in the South during slavery, many people might associate him with the South too. But it was actually really the West that created the persona of Mark Twain, which, as most people know, was a pen name. And it was when Twain was writing for newspapers in the new territory of Nevada during the Civil War that he started using that name. Um, From Nevada, he went to San Francisco, California, and met Bret Hart, who really opened many doors for him to become a literary writer. And by the way, the friendship between Hart and Twain and their eventual falling out was some of the juiciest stuff I read about while reading the book. And it's all in this chapter. <laughs> um, but anyway, while he was in San Francisco, he was commissioned to go to Hawaii, which was then called the Sandwich Islands, and write about it for a California newspaper. And it was the lectures that he gave based on Ho- on Hawaii that put Mark Twain on the map. Um, that and a short story based in California earned him the reputation as one of the most popular humorists of his time in the 1860s and 1870s. So in Twain's rising literary career, we can track the westward expansion of U.S. empire and settler colonialism. Without the settler colonial spaces like Nevada, California, and Hawaii, and the taking away of lands and resources from indigenous peoples, Mark Twain you know this identity could not have happened and the identity also couldn't have happened without his own personal ambition he wasn't satisfied with being just a humorist mostly associated with the west he wanted to be a serious literary writer and he wanted to be a nationally respected writer so When he was given the opportunity to write a monthly column in a respected literary magazine called The Galaxy, based in New York City in 1870, he saw it as a chance to remake himself. And I argue that his experiments with the Chinese characters um, in The Galaxy was crucial in this endeavor. He wrote 11 columns for The Galaxy And five of them featured a Chinese character. And I show that those characters were crucial to the development of Twain's literary voice, especially the development of a first-person narrative voice that would become the hallmark of his writing, especially in his most famous novel, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And because that novel features an enslaved Black character named Jim, Readers might be surprised that it was actually Chinese characters and not Black characters that Twain was experimenting with in the 1870s as he was honing his literary voice. But as my chapter shows, he was using formal qualities from Blackface minstrelsy in his Chinese um, representations. Uh, More than any other writer discussed in my book, Twain was an absolute and unabashed fan of blackface minstrelsy, which he called the N-word show. He really saw the manufactured blackness in minstrel shows as a thing, a commodity that he could appropriate in his writings for financial and cultural gain. So it makes sense that he eventually used the minstrel form to create Black characters after his experimentation with the Chinese characters didn't pan out. Um, And for the reason why, you'll have to read the book. Yes. (laughs) continued.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I found the following chapter two a nice contrast, I guess, against You know, the Hart and Twain case studies that you open with and that, you know, you sort of demonstrate a critique of minstrelsy, you know, in Ambrose Bierce's short story, The Haunted Valley. Mm. Um, Can you talk about that short story for us?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, actually, before I answer that question, um, I think it might be helpful to explain that Bret Hart, Mark Twain, and Ambrose Beers were all white men, and they all got their literary careers started in California. And all of them were transplants in San Francisco. So Hart was from New York, Twain was from Missouri, and Beers was from Ohio. But they all made their way to California when the state was still relatively new and considered the golden West. In California, um, Chinese people, mostly workers, comprise the biggest non-white population. So all three writers featured Chinese workers in their writings. And just as California was considered new and exotic, so were the Chinese. But my argument in the book is that the writers represented the Chinese workers um, in a way that was not in fact new, but replicated the anti-Black form of blackface minstrelsy, which made its way to California as soon as gold was discovered there and was wildly popular. Um, But, as you say, Ambrose Beers is kind of a contrast, and he's an actual anomaly because he was not a fan of blackface minstrelsy. Um, Of the three white writers, Beers is the only one who was explicitly critical of it. He thought that it was a cheap and gross attempt at humor. Um, And yet, he didn't criticize blackface minstrelsy for its anti-blackness. Um, But still, I think it's worth something that he found the form um, so distasteful. And what demonstrates this, um, as you note, is his first published short story, The Haunted Valley. And I really urge the listeners to go and read this short story, which is easily locatable online. Um, It's such a weird, bizarre story about two white men who each tell the narrator, um, first-person narrator, who is also a white man. And they tell him the story of a Chinese worker who's been dead for five years when the story begins. And the story is told mostly through dialogues. And anyone familiar with a traditional minstrel show format might be able to identify that the show replicates that format. Um, And by using that format to make the point that the white men's imagination and narrativization of the Chinese character story amounts to nonsense, the story ultimately undermines the minstrel form. So um, just as minstrel shows put forth a grotesque version of Blackness based on the viewpoint of white performers, the story shows that the white men's narratives about the Chinese worker are not based on the truth or even the Chinese worker, but only indicative of their own proclivities and desires, which the story implies are perverse.
0: Right. And I think the positionality of these authors especially against the ra- authors that you discuss in the second half of the book are important to account mm. um and these different representations for sure um and also the time period that shifts to you know like in the second half of the book you kind of go on to the post-reconstruction period and then you know in that you discuss the writer Swiss and Fars and Charles Chestnuts, as you put it, quote, reciprocal representations through the minstrel form and the figure of the Chinese worker, tease out the knowledge that each author produced about race and slavery, end quote. So, again, I think positionality for sure um, factors into all that, you know. So what are some of these reciprocal representations that you discuss in these last two chapters?
1: Hmm. Yeah, um, the term reciprocal representations is from Julia H. Lee's book Interracial Encounters, um, and she argues in the uh, she looks in the uh, she looks at representations of Asianness in African American literature and representations of blackness in Asian American literature um, at the turn of the twentieth century. And in dialogue with her book, I'm interested in how the mixed-race Chinese-Canadian writer Sui Far and Charles Chestnut, who was Black, wrote about race in the context of slavery and the popularity of blackface minstrelsy. So the question in the second half of the book is, how did writers of color, especially Black and Asian writers, write about race at the end of the 19th century in the United States? Um, and to provide a little context, um, for Asian Americans, this was a period of exclusion. Uh, so this was after the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, so this was a period of exclusion and, and rampant anti-Asian, mostly anti-Chinese racism. For African Americans, the period of the end of the 19th century and early 20th century is often referred to as the nadir because of the Jim Crow laws, lynchings, and white mobs that terrorized Black people and threatened their lives. So both Sui Far and Charles Chestnut wrote about anti-Chinese racism and anti-Black racism respectively, and they sometimes invoked the other's race in their writings as a point of comparison, which I discuss in the book.
0: Yeah, thank you for that context. I think it'll help as we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of those chapters um, starting with Suisse and Far's short stories, you say that those short stories are attempts to, quote, subvert the representational practices popularized by white U.S. writers such as Hart, and quote. So, in other words, countering those narratives, you know, um, mm-hmm. in that way. So, what are some of those strategies that you see in those short stories?
1: Hmm. Um, while writing this chapter on Sui Far, I found evidence that she was expressively wanting to write against this comical figure of the heathen Chinese that was made popular by Hart um, and by other writers more generally, too. She thought those representations were just a joke and caricatures And she thought to, um, she wanted to uh, present a more complex picture of Chinese characters as human beings. And one of the strategies for this was writing about Chinese women. Um, And to understand the significance of this, um, we have to keep in mind the Page Act of 1875, which was one of the laws passed during Reconstruction that laid the groundwork for the Chinese Exclusion Act. The Page Act Uh, prohibited the workers who were referred to as coolies, um, who were thought to be unfree, and women brought for, quote, immoral purposes from entering the United States. Uh, The law was really meant to target Chinese people specifically. And by saying that Chinese women associated with sex work couldn't enter the country, the law allowed for immigration officials to label any Chinese women as a sex worker and put the burden of proof on the women to prove that they weren't. And since Chinese testimony was inadmissible in court without a white person testifying on their behalf, the cards were really stacked against the immigration of Chinese women. So the law drastically curtailed the number of Chinese women in the United States. And what this meant in dominant US cultural representations of Chinese women was that they were either completely made invisible or racialized, you know, like and hypersexualized as sex workers. And the depictions of the women as sex workers had them either as lascivious and immoral or as helpless victims of Chinese or what was called yellow slavery. Um, Sui Sinfar challenged these kinds of flattened representations and humanized the Chinese women in her short stories about them. But she used language associated with slavery to do this. And in this way, I argue that she's similar to white suffragists of the 19th century who analogized white women's condition of subjugation under patriarchy with slavery, which is of course, totally illogical. So to problematize this rhetorical practice, I look at and Far's representation of black women characters that invokes the minstrel form. So even though I'm looking at Sui Sin Far's representations of Chinese women in this chapter, I'm also arguing that it's important for us to think about how black women were represented in popular culture at this time, especially if we're interested in challenging the workings of white supremacist patriarchy um in the afterlife of slavery.
0: Right, and it's so it was so prominent at that time. I mean, it just you know, would have definitely infiltrated um, writings like that. Hmm. Um, and then finally, uh, going on to the last case study, um, you discuss how Mr. Charles Chestnut, as, quote, black author, tried to write African-American literature that was not only distinct from, but also antithetical to the tradition of blackface minstrelsy, In quotes especially, you know, as you discuss in his 1901 novel, The Meryl of Tradition. So can you talk about your analysis of
1: The Meryl of Tradition in chapter five? Yes. Uh, This chapter, chapter five, acts as the conclusion to my book. So I situate Chestnut's novel in the context of what was going on with blackface minstrelsy at the turn of the 20th century. So at this time, there was waning interest in traditional minstrel shows because of innovations in theater, such as elaborate musicals. Um, But that doesn't mean blackface minstrelsy died out. Instead, it got incorporated into newer forms like vaudeville shows, and it also evolved into um, what was derogatorily called COON songs. Um, And here quickly, I want to take a minute to explain that I don't want to say out loud the racist word, C-O-O-N, and reproduce its violence. So I'll just say C in place of the word. So if I say C song or C show, that is what I mean. Um, And I got this practice from Professor Caritha Mitchell's helpful podcast on the anti-slur policy in her classrooms. Um, So getting back, the C songs became phenomenally popular at the end of the 19th century. And what's really remarkable about them is that many of them were written by Black artists. And what this shows me are the limited opportunities that Black artists had in performance arts, and that acts associated with minstrelsy were the few opportunities that they did have. So Black artists were also taking up the minstrel form at the end of the 19th century, but of course, in ways that are different from white Blackface actors. Um, But even so, Charles Chestnut believed that sea songs were part of the violence of white supremacy, and he believed literature was the means through which he could challenge it. Um, So his novel, The Marrow of Tradition, really exemplifies that belief. In the novel, he makes it very clear that sea songs and the practice of blackface minstrelsy were inseparable from the terror of white supremacist racism, which he also put in a global context as structuring US imperialism abroad. But even though he makes a connection between racism at home and imperialism abroad, he ultimately highlights the specificity of anti-Blackness through legal and extrajudicial, um, extrajudicial sanctioning of murder of Black lives. So that's the note that my book ends on. Um, that it's important for us to know the connections between how Asians and African Americans were racialized during and after slavery, especially through the minstrel form, but that the ways that Black lives continue to be imperiled in the afterlife of slavery, especially now in the 21st century, is not commensurable with other racisms.
0: Right. Again, I think this would definitely be an invaluable book. For folks to read right now um, in this present moment, for sure. But thank you so much, Dr. Yong, for talking with us. Um, I hope that people will look through your book and learned a lot from you, as I did uh, in reading it. Um, Can you tell us what other projects you have underway?
1: Oh yeah, of course. And thank you so much, Emily. I really learned. um, I really appreciate your taking the time to read my book, and talk to me about it. Um, This is really great. Um, So for my second book, I'm analyzing 20th century African American and Asian American literatures relationally through the lens of war, as in wars in Asia and war against um, Black lives in the United States. It's really remarkable just how many twentieth century African American and Asian American novels um, either center on wars or have wars in the background. And I'm interested in teasing out what they can teach us about critical ways of being and surviving in a permanent state of war in the um, in the u s Empire. I also have another project in mind, which looks at the cultural history of the Korean equivalent to the N-word in Korea as a way of understanding the global afterlife of slavery and anti-Blackness.
0: Got it. They sound like really interesting work as well. I'll look forward to reading those. <laughs> <as well. laughs> Thank you. Yeah. As you were talking to um, just this kind of a follow-up question, I was thinking about something that in those projects as well as in this book, and it's that idea of scholarship as activism. Mm. Um, you know, how do you see the this project that we were talking about and then maybe possibly those other, you know, projects you have going, how do you see that as activism or at least, you know, social justice, I guess?
1: Yeah, oh, that's such a good question. Um, it's something that I always keep in mind. Um, I, you know, I say that my training in is in Asian American studies, um, which is rooted in critical ethnic studies, um, which has roots in Asian American activism and, you know, black power movement and activism by communities of color. Um, so for me, Uh, the scholarship that I work on is always connected to this kind of effort, um, at social justice and attempts at transformation and kind of challenging the power structure. Um, but at the same time, I think that, um, what I do is, um, is not, I mean, I, I don't want to kind of, you know, put too much, um, emphasis on scholarship as activism, because I think right. activism is activism. <laughs> right, right <laughs> um, for sure. Yeah. So I think that, you know, this is, this is my work and this is uh, what I can contribute to, um, you know, speaking against power. But I think uh, real activism has to happen elsewhere, too, um, in, in addition to the scholarly work that we do.
0: Absolutely. Yep. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us on New Books in Asian American Studies. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us.
1: Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Emily.
0: No problem. And of course, listeners, thank you as well. Um, As a recap, this is the end of an interview with Dr. Caroline Yang about her book, The Peculiar Afterlife of Slavery, The Chinese Worker and the Minstrel Form, published by Stanford University Press in 2020. In the series on Asian America, this is Emily Allen here on New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.